0: First Peter Bible Study Part 5 Christian Living in Light of Being Saved For lay leaders and deacons to conduct after the Sunday service or during a midweek Bible study session hear the word of our Lord from First Peter chapter 1 verses 13 to 21 Therefore preparing your minds for action and being sober minded but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. So, last recording, we went over 1 Peter chapter one ten through 10-12, where St. Peter was talking about how Christians have this great privilege over the prophets and even the angels. In fact, you could extrapolate that out to everybody in the Old Testament. We have this advantage or this privilege that they did not have, namely the fullness of the gospel. We have a kind of clarity that gives us a lot more to hold on to things that the prophets and the angels wished they could have known. If you told Adam and Eve that, yes, one day the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent, she'd say, amen, and she would trust God for that to happen. But if you asked her what that looked like, when that would happen, how that would happen, etc., and who the seed would be, she would say, I don't know. I'm just trusting in God to take care of the corruption that the serpent brought about. You and I, however, we understand the forgiveness of our sins. We understand Christ, the Son of God, the Logos, coming down from heaven, becoming a man the incarnation, and dying on a cross for our sins, raising on the third day to defeat death, to defeat sin, death, and the devil. That's our Lord Jesus. We understand that. We have a whole lot more revelation given to us. And the prophets, well, they learned eventually that they were serving us. They were ministering to us with their prophecies, not themselves. So, we have all these wonderful privileges over former saints and even angels. But with that, well, a privilege implies a certain attitude, a kind of responsibility that the believer must have, especially in reading and understanding the scriptures. Because of what St. Peter says in 1 Peter 1 10 through 12, we Lutherans do hold to. New Testament primacy over the Old. We don't do what a lot of Reformed and Baptist thinkers do, of starting with the Old Testament and building up to the New, precept by precept. Mm -mm. We look at all of the Old Testament through the lens of the New Testament. And there's further implications and outworkings of this grace, this divine privilege given to us with the fullness of the Gospel. Today's passage, 1 Peter one 13 through 13-21, begins what that looks like. How we live life as Christians with that full understanding of the gospel. It is the beginning of what we would call the therefore passages. How the believer lives his life in light of being saved. Now, we do hold to three uses of the law, and St. Peter is all about the third use of the law. Because I am saved, now I want to obey God's commandments out of gratitude and recognition for what God has done for me and to me. Here, in First Peter, he is all about the interaction between the third use of the law and the gospel that inspires it. So we get to our commentary here, verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now it starts with the word therefore. And I know it sounds corny, but it's true. Whenever we see the word therefore, we have to ask, what is the therefore, therefore? Well, to put it simply, the following verses, the passage we read today, are predicated on this privilege that the Christian has, the position we are in, having received the gospel in its fullness. So St. Peter opens this passage by giving us three directives on account of that privilege. And first, the believer must be prepared for action or ready to do as God wishes for him to do in any given circumstance. Now, the specific Greek phrase suggests preparation to do battle. Ana tas tes dianoias. It literally means having girded up the loins of the mind. What is girding your loins? Well, in ancient times, you'd have longer robes that you'd be wearing, and if you had to go into battle, well, they didn't exactly have shorts back then. So you would gird your loins, tying the center of your robe together, tucking the back of it through your belt or your sash, and thus kind of making it into shorts so you could go out and fight. The connotation here is that You got to be ready for action. You got to be ready for work. And you got to be ready for battle. The Christian is a soldier in Christ's army engaged against Christ's enemies the world, the flesh, and the devil. And of course, as we understand from Ephesians chapter 6, putting on the whole armor of God, our armor is faithfulness and our weapon is the word. The second injunction he gives us here is to be sober-minded, not falling under the influence of intoxication. Now, this is not just a condemnation of drunkenness. You can be intoxicated by any number of substances as well as sinful habits, anything that's going to harm your readiness for action. You see, a soldier or a worker can gird his loins for battle all he wants, but if he's drunk, or high, or distracted by uh, pretty girls that he's lusting after, he's not going to be a very good soldier or worker, will he? Here, St. Peter is denying the stereotypical moral anarchy that people think Christians have, especially us Protestants. Oh, you think you guys are justified by faith alone? That just means you do whatever you want, huh? No, he who has the privilege of receiving the fully revealed gospel is also called to take God's side and serve God with discipline. Now this calls for faith, and particularly the kind of faith that sets your hope or your anticipation on the promises of Christ. What makes it worth it to try to please God? Well, because he saved you, because Jesus promises he is going to come back and he's going to bring us eternal life at the resurrection. Uh, Death is no longer something that scares us as Christians. If we really do put as much anticipation as possible in Christ's return and paradise. Now the next couple of verses, verses 14 through 16, say... As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. So if you're declared a child of God, then you should conduct yourself accordingly. St. Peter here assumes that you are a believer, Saved by grace through faith in Christ, thus making you a child of God. So, if you're assumed that way, that you're a child of God by his grace rather than deeds, that means that you are no longer a child of the devil. You are no longer a child of the world or even your own passions, so it is time to move on from them and to be holy or as the Greek word for holy, hagios, really means, different, separate. Now This comes with an odd combination in grammar. The 15th verse includes an imperative. You must do this. You also be holy in all your conduct. The 16th verse includes a future tense, indicative conjugation. You shall be holy, for I am holy. Now, to be holy, again, is to be different or separate. First, St. Peter tells us we must be separate. You have to do this. This is your command from the Apostle. And we have to do this in our conduct. But then he cites Leviticus 19, verse 2, in which God's promise to his people is that they will be holy on account of his holiness. So on the one hand, we are commanded to be holy. On the other hand, we are told that all of that is going to happen anyway. So this means that St. Peter intends for you and I as Christians to participate in something that is promised to those who are saved anyway. If God says that we will be holy, then holy we shall be. The process of this happening to us is called sanctification, The believer, on account of the activities of the Holy Spirit, becomes more righteous, less prone to sin, and more devout over time. But the expectation from St. Peter here is that we should participate in that process of sanctification, walking and working in cooperation with God in everything he's doing in our lives. The believer, with a girded and sober mind, is intended to desire to act in accordance with what shall be. Now, following along in that theme of being a child of God, verses 17 through 19 say, And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Now, on the 17th verse, we do have to be careful. We might have a Roman Catholic friend saying, Aha! You see, God is going to judge you according to your deeds, prot. Therefore, you have to... Uh, Work out your salvation in terms of faith plus works. That's just how it is. That's how you're justified, bro. Well, no, not really. Verse 18 says that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, and you were ransomed through and with the precious blood of Christ. Now, you tell me, guys, if someone's in a ransom situation Do they have to pay the person that is going to free them from their kidnapping situation? Does a police officer coming to rescue you from your kidnapping say, uh, buddy, listen, uh, before we try and get this guy his ransom here, uh, you kinda gotta earn your way back to the fold of society. No, they just save you from your situation. So what do we mean then when we say God judges impartially according to each one's deeds? Well, if you look at Hebrews 12, and if you look at the discipline of God, God looks at what you do in this life, and he treats you accordingly. If you are in sin, if you have these bad habits, your mind isn't properly girded, and you are not living sober, God will discipline you as a believer, because you are his child. This is why St. Peter says we have to conduct ourselves with fear throughout the time of our exile. It's the kind of fear that a child has for his father. If I misbehave, the father is going to discipline me. If I behave well, he will reward me. It's just a statement of fact here. This is talking about this life. Now, with that said, because we don't purchase being ransomed, and we're not responsible for freeing ourselves from the kidnapping or the captivity we were in, he does say that we are in exile. We're children having been taken captive by sin, death, and the devil. And though the ransom has been paid, the ransom for the wrath of the Father paid by the blood of Christ, and the price being death, which he paid for us, we're still not fully delivered yet from the sufferings and temptations that Christians are subject to here in the world. We're not home yet. Before we return from this captivity, this exile that all Christians are under, we are to work with the understanding that our Heavenly Father expects us to be exemplary and holy exiles. But the promise of deliverance from our situation, our exile, comes from Christ. So St. Peter writes in verse 20 and 21, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Now when we say he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, what that means is everything Jesus was going to do on the cross and in the resurrection, everything he would win for us, including the incarnation, that was planned ahead from eternity past. Christ's atoning death and resurrection have been known since before, let there be light. Now, some of us are going to ponder how that works, and we're going to be very, very curious, especially because the gospel's first a promise appears to be a reaction to the fall in Eden, Genesis 3, verse 15. But we've got very little to wrestle with here. God knew that free creatures would inevitably fall from a position of untested righteousness. But on the other hand, forcing persons to make decisions according to righteousness destroys their personhood, and God wants to be worshipped by persons, not objects. Or as the formula of Concord, uh, Part 2 in the Salah Declaration calls it, blocks. So God wanted to create the best possible world, but he wanted to do it through means and through a process and understanding that this was going to happen, the fall of mankind, sin entering into the world because of, well, freedom inevitably leading to bad uses of freedom. He set in motion a plan of salvation. He knew that this would happen. So the way God sees it is... This is the best possible way to achieve the best possible world where free persons worship God in spirit and in truth and having recovered or been saved from sin, death, and the devil are no longer affected by any sort of temptation to misuse their freedom. Now, people might find it more confusing that St. Peter gives us a soteriological statement in verse 21. He says that through Christ we are believers in God. Now, St. Paul has said previously in Romans 10, 17 that we are brought to faith through the word, hearing the word concerning Christ. But does this mean that it is through Christ that we're converted? Or wait, wait a second. In John chapter 16, Jesus teaches that the Holy Spirit, who speaks about Christ and convicts the world, he's the one basically bringing us to Jesus and bringing us to conversion. But then again, since this is a plan of the Father, shouldn't we say that our heavenly father is the one decreeing conversion with christ and the holy spirit playing subordinate roles to accomplish his dictates okay we're around and around and around we go entire denominations have been founded upon trying to answer this question regarding predestination and conversion and regeneration how does all of this work let me give you an answer that is simple but unsatisfying to most curious minds. God the Father sent our Lord Jesus, that we might, through the forgiveness of sins and the regeneration of baptism, come to our Father in faith and trust. In a word, we would not be believers in the true God if God had not sent his Son to die for our sins. And we would not receive this forgiveness without the proclamation of the word inspired by the Holy Spirit in the washing of regeneration, which restores the image of God in us. Now, rather than, say, the reformed version of a regimented group of selected elect, all three members of the Trinity are involved in conversion and salvation but not in the sense of subordination theology, in the sense that each member of the Trinity is playing a role in taking you, somebody who formerly was not a believer, just entrapped and enslaved in darkness, and turning you into a believer, refreshed, renewed, strengthened. Your will has been freed. Now you can make real choices and glorify God with them. We follow the law of liberty, as St. James says. All three members of the Trinity play an integral role to making that happen. But, none of us would be Christians. None of us would even be believers in the true God if the Father had not sent his Son to die for our sins. And St. Peter wants to highlight that, saying, Hey, You want to trust in the true God for your salvation and for your daily bread and for everything that you have, but let's talk about how Jesus plays into that and advances that in you, brings about that faith through his atoning work. Otherwise, I mean, it wouldn't really matter what you believed, because your belief counts as nothing before God if it is not predicated on faith in his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. Remember, St. Peter constantly brings together and juxtaposes and talks about the interaction between the gospel and the third use of the law. Now, without the gospel, we don't really have much of a motivation for obeying God beside fear, like fear of punishment, absolute terror, death, and everything. But in highlighting the work of Christ in us, and through us, and for us. He's always going to bring everything back to Jesus. And this is a theme that is always going to be repeated in 1 Peter. Always bringing everything back to Christ. What he has done, and how we live accordingly. Alright guys, next week we will be going over more of it, and I'm excited, I'm enjoying this. (laughs) Until then, our Lord bless you and keep you. Amen and Amen.